Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Oh my goodness, I am on cloud nine. I know you can't see me right now, but I am. I have the biggest grin on my face. I just got done interviewing probably some of my favorite people I've ever had on the podcast. And mind you, I've started this podcast around four years ago, I believe. Yeah, four years ago. And these guests were at the top of my podcast guest wish list. And I'm so happy that I was finally able to sit down and have a great conversation with them. On the show, I have Jonathan and Angela Scott. They are world-renowned naturalists, conservationists, award-winning photographers, they're authors, they're speakers. You might know them from the very popular show on Animal Planet, Big Cat Tales, seasons one and two, which are actually now airing on Discovery+. Plus. You also might recognize Jonathan from his work with the BBC and Big Cat Diary, which ran from 1990 to 2008. This is one of those interviews. It was honestly like a pinch myself moment. I have been just a huge fan of their work. I remember growing up, I grew up in the mountains of Southern Idaho and I remember it was like, and now picture in the mountains of Southern Idaho, like my family lived in an isolated cabin And I remember we lived in there for years and we finally got this big satellite dish. I mean, this satellite dish was huge. I don't even know. It was like six feet. Was it like six feet wide? It was this giant satellite dish. And we were finally able to get Animal Planet. And I remember as a kid watching Big Cat Diary. And that's when I was first introduced to Jonathan and Angela's work on that show and them just documenting the lives of lions and leopards and cheetahs. And I've been so fascinated just with their work and their story. And going to Africa for my first time, I remember just just binge watching Big Cat Diary, buying their books and just wanting to learn as much as I could about Africa and as much as I could about visiting the Maasai Mara, which is quite possibly the greatest wildlife reserve in the world that is located in Kenya. Once again, to get them on the show, was just incredible. If uh, you're a huge animal person, which I'm assuming you are, if you're listening to the show, you're going to love this interview. I asked them all the questions I have ever wanted to ask them. I have a giant, like, you should see my notepad. I have this, like, giant list of questions, and the conversation went on well over an hour. I encourage you, as always, to join us for the after show. The after show is a way for you to listen to the full interview. We talk well into the after show about some of the most famous characters from Big Cat Diary, including Halftail the Leopard. I ask them about famous lions, Notch and Sons. I ask them about Olive the Leopard. I ask them the best times to visit the Mara. I ask them everything. So if you want to listen to the full show, head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max and you can listen to it there. Also, before we get to the interview, As always, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and also leave a rating and a review. It seriously helps push the podcast out to more people. 
I also encourage you to continue to send in your guest suggestions. We're getting a lot of them in and I just, I really appreciate it. So you can send those guest suggestions in as well. You can email me. My email is simply Corbin at CorbinMaxi.com. With that said, I am so excited. Let's dive into it. Today, I am joined with Jonathan and Angela Scott, the big cat people. You two are just, you've done so much in your careers. You're naturalists, conservationists, authors, speakers, been in countless documentaries. Thank you for coming on the show. It's a, it's a pleasure, Very but Corbin, you, yeah, you know, the only thing is when you list it like that, it just reminds us how old we are. And how young you, you, you got to be in your thirties. I'm <laughs> 32. And I, I just, I, it's insane. I've been watching your work for years, ever since I was a kid. And I'm not trying to say that to make you feel old. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, you know, we feel so privileged, um, you know, because I, I honestly believe that, you know, we're just so fortunate. Every morning I wake up with, a, and I know Angie does too, with a sense of gratitude. I think particularly that both of our parents gave us the opportunity to follow our dream and not to follow their dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm happy you said that. Like, how does this work? Because for a listener, you two have dream jobs. You have been working and photographing and, you know, filming big cats in Africa, primarily the Maasai Mara, for over 40 years. How does this start? I mean, you guys, your office is, is the great African savanna. Okay, I'm, you know, I talk too much, so I'm going to let answer Angie, Angie answer that one. So how did it start? Well, she'll tell you how it started for her. Well, I was born in Africa, so my childhood was a dream childhood. You know, I was born in Alexandria, and then my father moved us down to Tanzania when I was about four or five. And it was that era where you you we were very free as children there wasn't much uh, discipline in the sense of where the children were so my brother and i would just get up and run outside and run onto the beach and we swam we played we we learned to to sail when we were like 5 or 6 years old and then of course our holidays were out in serengeti so it was just a different era, and I look back at that time and think how incredibly fortunate I was with the childhood that I was given. And I think, you know, I, I tried to give that to our children too. We, we, didn't, we didn't hold back, if you like. When, whenever we had an adventure, we would grab the children and we would go with them. So David, our son, basically grew up in the back of the Land Rover. As a very little one, he would have his own little spot in the back. And as soon as he could hold a camera, we gave him a camera. And, you know, he grew up loving just, you know, he would be so patient in the back of the car until there would be a little, a little very, very <laughs> gentle, Dad, is it time for is breakfast? It breakfast? <laughs> you know, and we'd yeah. go and find it. And he loved breakfast because, you know, fire. yeah, like if we if we say we're in the Masai Mara, uh, you know, we, we've got lots of little secret places which we just can tuck ourselves away from the crowd 
and uh, you know you'll be down by the river and and you don't know you've got to and you've got to keep your eyes and ears open you know there could be a buffalo in a bush there could be a hippo come charging out of the water but one doesn't want to overemphasize that to some degree because of course as soon as you mean you mention africa people think of lions and leopards and buffaloes and elephants and they think big dangerous animals and we always remind people that those big dangerous animals mostly just want to be left alone. They have a peaceful life. And so invariably, when there is some horrendous incident, it's normally because you either don't follow the rules or you get too close to an animal or you surprise an animal. It's not always your fault, but generally it's not the animal's fault. But of course, when they do decide that they are threatened or upset or angry, well, then the last thing you want is a leopard in your car or an elephant, uh, you know, <laughs> testing its strength against the the metal of your Land Rover. Yeah, I, I could imagine. I mean, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but have you had any serious close calls? Do you know we, we've 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 we had have. yeah we've had we've had we've we had have, but the, you know our worst close call was, was not in Africa. Not it in was Africa. it was actually because because you know. A lot of people think, you know, you're so spoiled. How could you ever want to leave Africa? There's just so much to do there. And of course, they're right. But at some point in the early 90s, we were invited by Abercrombie and Kent, who was selling space on Antarctic cruise expeditions. And so for 20 years, we went, we would spend our days in Africa. And then, you know, we always said to people, if we our perfect day would be get up, go out, watch the big cats. And then as it begins to get dark in Africa at seven o'clock, you head to Antarctica, where it's going to be light all night. And so we had the chance really to get the best of both worlds, because I think if you've done what we've done with big charismatic animals in Africa, where else could you go to create any kind of sense of numbers and awe. Okay, it's penguins and it's albatrosses and it's seals. It's not wildebeest and whatever, but, but what a place. But it's wilderness, you know, it's the last great place on earth. You know, it's the last place that you can go and really feel that you are in a place that is untouched by humans. Which of course Africa really isn't anymore, yeah. but we were very, very lucky to have, we spent, 18, we did 18 trips. Yeah, and, and to give you an example of what Angie means by that, a comparison, in the Maasai Mara, pre-COVID, in a good year, you would probably get 300,000 visitors a year. In Antarctica, you might get 40,000 visiting Antarctica in a year. So, you know, 10 times more people in a much tinier place uh, visiting the Mara. And so, you know, thank God for Antarctica. And, and I think, and Greenpeace tried to establish this, which of course, you know, as photographers and conservationists, we're always looking at what's the bottom line, you know, what can we do to help protect these areas that we've been so privileged to spend time in. And Greenpeace proposed, and it never happened, but it's a great idea, and I hope at some point it does, that Antarctica would be declared the first world park, the first world park, in other words, hands off. And of course, you know, Antarctica does have a lot more protection than some other areas 
from you know man's greed and 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 wanting to sort of you know dig for oil and mine for this and and, and whatever whatever but uh, you know we've been incredibly fortunate yeah and, and you said yeah but but we didn't answer your question we got halfway there which was actually one of the scariest things for us was an incident that happened when we were on foot because in Africa a lot of the times you're in a vehicle mm -hmm. so you know those big dangerous animals if they are going to be dangerous you know you're protected to some degree because you're in a vehicle and they don't really associate you human beings with the vehicle in Antarctica you're on foot and a lot of the animals are completely unafraid of people. Well, we landed on, we were doing a one month semi-circumnavigation around Antarctica. And we went from Ushuaia in uh, South America, in Argentina, and we went all the way around to Christchurch in New Zealand. But before we got there, we landed on a sub-Antarctic island to go and look for um, it, it was royal albatrosses which were nesting on the island and we were warned when we were then going to walk up to this place you know a mile or so away to avoid something which is called a hooker's sea lion and a hooker's sea lion the males are huge creatures I mean, really huge. Yeah, I mean, you know, you they know, are really massive. Like and a, yeah, like, I mean, you know, hundreds of kilos, 300 kilos. And, of course, they rear up. Now, we were told, if you see a hooker's, and it's the breeding season, so not a great time to get in front of a hooker's sea lion unless you're a female. Mm -hmm. And so now we're walking up towards the Royal Albatrosses, and we've been warned by the expedition leader, if you see a hooker's sea lion, coming down towards you, go back to the ship. Anyway, what happens? Within half an hour, we see a thumping great hooker's sea lion coming down towards us. And I stupidly said to Angie, don't worry, we'll just get off the side of the wood walkway. We'll just get off the side and it'll go past. Huh. Fatal. Bad mistake. We were chased by this thing. And I tell you, this New Zealand... So now we're in New Zealand. you know Lord of the Rings? Yes. That sort of dwarf... Okay, you know the dwarf shrubbery, you know, trees that are you know, knee-high to a grasshopper? And when you try and actually clamber up them, they fall over. So now this sea lion is chasing me. I've got a big pack, backpack on my back. First thing, I fall on my ass. So now I'm on my <laughs> bottom. I've got my feet up in the air. I've got a tripod, and I... The one good thing about this was that I was able to string together the best line of obscenities, of profanities you could ever wish to hear, which I just exploded at the sea lion and who just looked at me and bared his teeth. Meanwhile, I am now on my backside with my tripod trying to keep this thing at bay. And to my horror, I then look around for Angie and I can't see Angie. So then I get up, the sea no. lion starts to go off through the grass or what, the trees. What you haven't explained is oh, yeah. the, okay, walkway, a bit more. the walkway was going up the hill, but there was a very steep incline. So we were actually on a hill with all these little trees coming out of the incline. So if you can imagine that you couldn't see how steep it was down one side. And of course, when Jonathan went over and then was fighting the sea lion, I actually went over and fell through this forest, oh, right through all tumbling. the trees. 
tumbling yeah. right down to the bottom. And then the sea lion decided to follow, to follow her me. because of the movement. He can, it was excited by the movement. He can go at the bottom like yeah. this, whereas I've fallen through the top of the trees. Yeah. So, so the, the anyway, sea lion. Anyway, no, just we quickly though. So this sea lion lines. now was going on his belly like a like a, a toboggan, you know, just like a, a toboggan on skis going through snow. And I get up and I see this rippling through the grass and the trees and Angie running. And this thing going after her, and I'm running after this thing, trying to get my leg, leaving my rucksack. Anyway, screaming and shouting. Fortunately, the sea lion got distracted and it headed off in the other direction. But when I got to Angie, she'd hurt a disc. She'd sort of damaged a disc in her back. And when we got back to the boat, there were some friends there, and they said, "What on earth? What was that? What were you doing down in that? Or you know, all that grass? Why were you so?" Anyway. Tell you, but you know the problem was, and and but this again just illustrates the point. I didn't listen to advice of somebody who knew a lot more about hookers sea lions than I did. And the, the the expedition cruise member, he said, well, he said it would have made a good line. He said, "Big cat man accosted by hooker in the wilds of New Zealand." <laughs> Oh my goodness. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. When you think of like, you don't think that they're that fast, but I'm sure they were a lot faster probably in oh. person. You know, they because these sea lions, they can sort of, flip, their back flippers, they can put underneath them. Oh. And they then halump for long and they can go faster than a human being. And typically when anybody is chased, they're liable to fall over. You know, you're scrambling, your brain's running faster than your legs. Nearly always when people turn and run, they fall over a termite mound, over a log, over a thing, you know, bad news. Anyway, there you go. Yeah. So, back to yeah, yeah, back, to, back to the big cats. How did you two, and this might be such a large question, but a lot of people listening work with animals or want to work with animals. How did you two manage yeah. to make this a career? Because traditionally, people who work with animals do not make much money, whether it's in animal care or people trying to sell uh, you know, photographs, you two are an anomaly for actually making this a lifelong career. How did you do it? Do you know, I think by staying flexible, because to be honest, if we had just dedicated ourselves to being stills photographers, well, when Getty and Corbis, you know, took the steam out of the image industry because they had so many millions of images that the value of an individual picture that a photographer was taking, you know, suddenly was, was nothing. So the period of being able to make great sales with your photography alone by putting them into picture libraries and, you know, using them in that kind of way, those days went. But fortunately, we had this passion for nature and we really looked at every avenue which we could explore. So with the radio, the television, we both draw. So we're both artists as well as photographers. The television work, the giving lectures, taking people on safari. You, you really needed to be able to be multi-talented or, or you know, leverage whatever talents you had. But we were always loyal to our love of nature. So we never did, you know, we never went it off. He said, we'll sell our souls because we can make more money doing this because our passion, you know, I think Joseph Campbell, the philosopher put it right, which is, you know, the joy in life, the real goods, the real value 
it's not in the pounds, shillings and pence or the dollars and cents that you earn. It's in the joy that you feel in what you do with your life. And he was so right. So the joy, we may not have a palatial mansion and, and you know, three cars. Actually, we do have three cars. But you know what I mean? We don't have six carriages. We don't have six carriages and we don't have a second home in France. But the fact is, we have loved our life. We have absolutely loved it. And we sometimes test ourselves and we say, if somebody was to say to you, Okay, if you could have done anything in the world, if you could have been as bright as a button and, a, you know, a, a, a done, had the ability to choose any career, would you have done it differently? No. This, this was I, our bliss. I think also we were very lucky as a partnership because we're both very, very different. And we both, we have skills, but also we, we fill each other's gaps. So I'm much quieter and more serious and can get on with the, the backstory, if you like. Well, Jonathan's out there, you know. Talking being, about it. Yeah, being the <laughs> gregarious one. You know, we, we fill each other's holes, if you like. Yeah. That of, and we're, we're really good friends. So we work really, really well together. You know, when, when we're doing photography together, we, we're very attuned to each other so I know the best shots that Jonathan takes he knows what I love to do we share each other's you know he will say hand me a big lens or he'll do the driving while I'm taking the photographs so there's a great um, partnership and I think that's what's made us probably more successful than anything and, because and you we know enjoy just being out there on our own together for weeks, months, years. We don't need anything but each other and what we love to do. And you and know, it's Corbin, not about making money. You know, we just have fun. We've had spent the last 40 years really traveling the world, loving and feeling so, so fortunate about the opportunities that have come our way. And I think, Corbin, you know, if you were to say to somebody, you know, what would be the test of a great relationship or a great marriage? Well, if you do what we do, and spend so much time, you know, often in a hot tin box, a Land Rover or a Land Cruiser, you know, 14 hours a day waiting for lions to do something or following and pursuing a particular story. You've, as Angie said, you've got to be really good friends and you've got to, Angie always says that the key to it, and, and this doesn't come as easily as it might sound when one says it, but really a great relationship is a competition of generosity. If you are thinking what is the best thing for the other person and they happen to be doing the same thing for you, then you can't go wrong because you're falling over each other to say, no, hang on a minute. Yeah, let me, I can do that. Or, you know, oh, look, could you just quickly grab this, this or that or whatever? You, you've got to have that sense of comradeship. And then, and, and, and the strange thing is, if you think about photography, it's an incredibly selfish pursuit because it, when I say selfish, not I, I only mean it in a certain particular way. And that way is that, you know, it's about you, your camera, your view and you trying to get the shot. And there'll be somebody next to you also trying. So to be able to actually be generous and work together for a common good as photographers, that actually takes a lot of doing and we see a lot of people who are not married and don't have great relationships 
but they're great photographers, but that's because they spend the whole time doing what they want to do on their terms, on their own, and traveling to wherever they want. And it would be very hard to sustain a relationship like that. Mm -hmm. We would never compete. No, yeah, we weren't. We we never were trying to outdo the other person in terms of oh look, yeah, we weren't trying to take a better picture than the other one. We were looking at a situation like a pride of lions, the marsh pride, and we were looking at how can we get the most out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And I think, as right at the very beginning, we determined that, and I think it really helped, but it it didn't. It didn't help um, how people probably saw us, but we determined that no matter what we did, all our work would be Jonathan and Angela's God. You know, we didn't say, okay, so did you take that picture or did I take that picture? Mm. It sort of got really complicated if you tried to do that. For us, it's just about us, about what we do together. Um, It doesn't matter who pressed button yeah, you know what I mean because actually... I may be driving the car and getting into the position and Angie might not have got the picture if I couldn't have gone here and mm-hmm. I might not have pressed the button and used the right lens to get so we think of it and we're not trying to be sort of cute uh, although it did actually give us a, a bit of we were talking to a person who wanted to use some of our images and he said well I'd like one from Angie and then one for you and we said, well, we don't really sort of think of it like that. You know, can we just send he you a selection? So oh, yeah, he said, he, said he, he was making all kinds of excuses about, well, I'm not sure if the publishers will like it if it's credited to Jonathan and Angela Scott. Um, you know, people want to know who took it. And it was just like, but hang on a minute. These are our pictures. You know, this was a joint venture. We did this together. And if we want to credit ourselves like that, we're not trying to be clever or deny the other person, you know, the benefit of saying that's their picture. But I'm sure it's one of the reasons that we've kind of made this partnership, apart from the fact that we really do get on very well. But I think in the sense of work work relationship, it's probably one of the reasons why it's continued to work so well, so long, and we still keep finding new projects to do and get excited about. The next thing that we're about to start on. I keep wanting to take it easy, and Angie just looks at me and she says, "You've got to be kidding." She said, "You'll just turn into some sort of, you know, vegetable." I've seen, I've seen it happen to people, and you know, she's absolutely, honestly, Corbin. I think, and particularly say through COVID, because Angie has lupus, so she has one or two health issues. So we have to be quite careful over this period in terms of isolating and being more careful than people you know, who it wouldn't matter or might not matter if they got COVID in terms of, you know, they may be able, they might might be fine with it. But during this period, that, you know, what really took us through it, and I think it exemplifies the way we work, which was we stick to a routine. We're very disciplined because, you know, when you, you said, well, how do we manage to be successful? Because we we are extremely disciplined. We both take responsibility to get up, to get on with things, you know, to create projects. And Angie's brilliant at, at sort of coming up with new ideas and to constantly have something, in a sense, to get up for. Because sometimes you don't feel, you know, you maybe got a bad knee or, you know, you, you've got aches and pains or you're getting, you know, feeling a little bit older or whatever it is. That sense of drive, a sense of purpose. We have a clear sense of purpose. And our sense of purpose right now, and I know this is maybe, you know, we can talk about this later, is this thing that we now 
are putting our hearts behind, which we've called the Sacred Nature Initiative. And it's basically, our last couple of books were highlighting how disconnected people have come, become from nature. They mm. think it's sort of like, you know, well, yeah, maybe I, you know, maybe I'll pay attention to the climate crisis, or yeah, I know that you know a thousand species went extinct in the last whenever. Um, people have forgotten that actually we cannot live, breathe, eat, survive without nature. We may be clever and have technology to create, you know, quasi natural things for us, but it all comes from nature, and we're abusing it terribly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you started that in 2001, correct? Or excuse me, uh, 2021, Sacred Nature. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Because we did a book 2016. We really felt that we'd got to a point in our careers where we wanted to dictate the shape of the book. As Angie always said, a lot of the books that we've done have been driven by the text. So we had a story and then the editor or the publisher would say, okay, fine, now we need, uh, you know, your page 22, we need a picture of a cheetah. And as Angie said, she said, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to use our images in a big format, beautifully produced Japanese paper. Our son, David, who's a, our creative director, designed the book. And that first book of that type, it won gold for Angie for photography. 85% of the pictures were hers in the Independent Publishers Awards. And it was called Sacred Nature, Life's Eternal Dance. And the reason we called it that was, if you look at nature, there is this wonderful dance-like harmony to it. It ebbs and flows. It, it's just lyrical and it works so perfectly. And if, for instance, you were to come to the Masai Mara, as I know you have, um, and the Serengeti, the big brother to the south of it, and you just look at how perfectly that system, the migration, it just ticks along beautifully, ebbs and flows, you know, animals die, animals survive, one eats the other, this, 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 and there's a wonderful synergy to it. So that's the rhythm, and we used in that first book, Mara Serengeti, to just highlight the fact as to how far removed Oh, Mara said, yeah. There it is. That's one of the, now, okay, now, now I tell you, Corbin, before Sacred Nature, so Sacred Nature 1 was 2016. That's 16 years earlier. And that was our favorite book because this book actually, as Angie had said, the pictures, they got the lion's share. You know what I mean? It wasn't about the text, the pictures. Yes. Yeah, that and was, that was, that can, was reprinted. Can I? Can I tell you something ridiculous? So this was before I yep. went to Kenya for my first time. Before I went to the Mara, I was obsessed with this book. And I carried this on the plane to Africa. My friends were like, are you kidding me? Like, you have to pack light? And I was like, nope. I'm taking this all the way from Boise, Idaho to Africa. And it just captured the Mara. I mean, just, just because I was so obsessed with Africa. I still am. And I wanted to get a sense of what it was like. So this has been back and forth to Africa, this heavy book. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you say heavy, you wait till you see sacred nature. Okay. Sacred nature is three kilos. Oh, wow. 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 No, so you're, so you're talking about being a, a photographer. I just, Jonathan, 
did you ever grow up seeing yourself on television? Um, no, you know, I think that was, you know, that was the great, I think that was the, what was wonderful for us in a sense was we didn't go out seeking to be famous mm. or celebrities. And, and, you know, this was 40 years ago. The first television work I did was a, a piece on Nature Watch or, you know, which was like in 1980. And it was Television found me because I was doing something interesting and unusual. And then when people saw what I was doing, they got interested in what I was doing. And more people said, oh, could we come on safari with you? Or will you help us? We want to make a dog, uh, a film on wild dogs. So I was used as a sort of helper. And then at some point, somebody said, hey, you know, you like talking. Maybe we should try you in front of camera. So it evolved like that. And it sort of it makes us laugh a little bit now to find that if you ask some youngster, you know, what would you most like to do with your life? What, what's, what would you like most? And they'll say, I want to be famous. I want to be a celebrity. And then you'd, want to, you'd then want to say to them, a celebrity, a famous for what? Do you, you know, like in the best case scenario, if you're well known, it would be like, unless it's notorious and you're some awful person, it would be nice to be like David Attenborough. You're well known because you've had an amazing career and you've informed the world and you brought joy and happiness. Now that's that's worth being uh, famous for. But just to want to be a celebrity, what? So as people can say to you, hey, hi, I, you know, I saw you. And yeah, no, it, it's much nicer to come the other way from it, which is where people genuinely, like say for instance, with Big Cat Diary, with the TV show, you know, how wonderful to be involved with the television series that ran for 12 years and is still repeated now and virtually never hear anybody, you know, troll you or whatever, you know, be nasty or say, oh, God, you know, why, why you? Why did they ask you to do that? You know, because, well, they asked us because we had something to say. Well, that's nice because you can talk sense. But that was just a wonderful, wonderful thing to be involved with something as wonderful as telling the stories of these incredible big cats and just thrilling the pants off people who couldn't come to Africa. You know, who it might have been me sitting in England thinking, oh my God, I wish I could do that. Yeah. Wonderful. You have a great presence. I mean, both of you. I mean, Jonathan, I know that you are more in front of the camera, especially for Big Cat Diary, but a great presence on camera. You just can tell a story like no one else. Did you have like producers try to change you or try to say, be more like this? Oh, yeah. You're kidding. They said to me, be like, be more like David Attenborough. You know, just be not. Oh, no. Yes. Angie's going to tell you a funny story. The funniest one is one. You know, I was the photographer on the cat diary. So I was doing the stills, the 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 publicity pictures. I got very friendly with one of the directors and she wanted to use Jonathan on another program about lions. But she said, you know, he looks too clean. He looks like an accountant. (laughs) And so I spent the next couple of months on Photoshop, you know, sending her pictures. I would add, you know, I'd cut off his She'd take the moustache away. And then I would make his hair long. And then put a longer hair. And then they tried an 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock shadow and it didn't go down well at all. But but you know, so Corbin, it's so funny because they said to me, they said, you know, Johnny, the problem with you is you not only look squeaky clean with the short haircut 
you look like an accountant. And I'm sorry to all my friends who are accountants for saying that. And they said, but particularly, even if you fell over in a large puddle, you're going to get up still looking all clean and sweet. And, you know, we need to look at... Anyway, it, it, it didn't make it. You know. I know, it worked. Oh, yes, no, that's true. Hair. You yeah, have the longer you hair. See, if, you look at, if you look at those early pictures, he I definitely looked inside. more like a Boy Scout. Yes. Whereas now... I, I look a little bit more like a lion. I think I think the key to your both of your successes and especially yours just on camera is just being authentic and being you. I've yeah. I've worked in television and I can't tell you because I also look clean and I can't tell you how many times like you yep. need to look rough. You need to look. We need more of a Steve Irwin type. We need you to just to be more like this mask. It's it, it's crazy what they try to do. And I found that. You just have to be yourself. Like everyone can see right through it. And so that's what's worked for me and what's obviously worked for you. I think it's so true because you see, um, uh, you know, okay, in the early days with the BBC when they, you know, they're always looking for the next Attenborough. And of course there is no next Attenborough. No. It's like looking for the next Muhammad Ali or, uh, you know, or uh, Michael jo uh, Jordan, you know, no, no, they're, they're the, mm. of their own ilk. Don't, don't spoil it. But I think, and this is what I always say to people who, if they ever ask me, you know, about presenting or whatever it is, is just don't try to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. Just 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 don't try and act. Just try and be natural. Now, obviously, we learn, you know, I know you will know, you know, the little tricks of the trade, lift the voice a little bit for emphasis, you know, make a sudden pause. Now, that's difficult for me. Uh, but, you know, all of those kind of things. But generally... And hopefully, if the audience likes you, it allows you to just be natural. But more important than anything is you need to know what you're talking about. If you know what you're talking about, you don't have to worry about what the camera is doing. And, oh, my God, you know, my lines and what am I going to say? Oh, but was I meant to say it like the? If you know and you're authentic and you've got the information and more than anything, enthusiasm You've got to convey passion. that passion, passion, you know, so that you're going to be thinking, oh, my God, it, it must be amazing. You know what that person's when they're looking at that. Look at this little cheetah cub. Oh, I, you know, is it going to survive? I don't think it can. You've got the audience absolutely eating out of your hand. Yeah. And I, I just let's. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Corbin, it, he's like that whether he's presenting or not. You know, he's a little Tigger. <laughs> you know, he's this enthusiastic. We call him Tigger. after Winnie the Pooh, Tigger. You know, oh, yeah. because Jonathan's like this when he wakes up in the morning. There's this joie de vivre, this life force that bows out of bed every day. Although Angie did say to me the other day, I've just had my knee replaced, which has gone fantastically. But I was walking, you know, behind her. And I can't remember what it was, but I, I must have said something, you know, which was a, a bit grumpier because I'm not normally grumpy at all. And she just said to me, she said, I just hope you're not going to turn into one of those grumpy old men, are you? And I said, <laughs> how, how could you say that? She said, well, I did wonder. But yeah. Corbin, did, did, you see, uh, did you see our latest TV show called Big Cat Tales. Uh, am I have I seen it? I've been obsessed. So last night we've been I've been binge watching it. No, okay. no, yeah, I, I I've been binge binge watching it on Discovery Plus. I was up till like past midnight last okay. night, and it was like I need to go to sleep because I have to interview you tomorrow. 
it is it's so good and i'm happy you mentioned it because i was a huge fan of big cat diary and my wife and i sat down to watch big cat tales and i was like oh my goodness how far have we come with just the the uh, the technology that the i i feel like i'm in the mara and and audience i have to i cannot recommend big cat tales more season one and two i know they aired on animal planet they are on discovery plus but you just suck us in and there are some heart-wrenching parts of that series yeah, and i point at, at, at angie doesn't angie have a great voice great I mean, she looks but great but doesn't here, here, I love her voice. And, and here's the deal though angie i don't under i'm kind of like jonathan i'm like when i saw my first lions and i tried to film i was like oh my gosh we have lions like i was so excited and angie you're just calm relax you're sitting in a vehicle lions are in the shade of your vehicle these big males and the females and cubs and you're just so professional and like, and behind me are the lions and isn't this a beautiful sight? And I'm just like, oh my God. Yes, you're, you're, you're great. It's so good but, to see but, you. Yeah, and you know, Corbin, just a little tip for your audience too. So we were so fortunate. Look, working with the BBC is like gold star. You know, you yeah. can really feel confident that they're not gonna, you asked, you know, do we sometimes get people pushing us to, to do things or be different. Yes, we do. And we have a very firm line as to, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to say that because it's going to enhance the story. It's got to be truthful. But what was wonderful, so Big Cat Diary went for two, 12 years, ended up with Big Cat Live 2008. And then, of course, when the BBC said, you know, this has been amazing, and they were still getting great figures and everything, but, you know, time to move on. So... We, some of the people involved with it, of course, were then all thinking to ourselves, how can we do this? You know, can we reinvent it or how can we do it? And we spent five years trying to think how we could. Well, one day we were contacted by people who produce a wonderful show that I know your audience would like called Tales by Light. Mm. Tales by Light is a series on photographers and it's on Netflix. And it's produced by un... What are they called? Untitled Film film Works. And the lead cameraman and entrepreneurial producer for it is a guy called Abraham Joff. And he won the Cinema Photographers Award in Australia. And he came out, he said to us, I'd love to feature you in season two of Tales by Light on photographers. And he did. And we did two half hours with him in the Mara. And we called it Sacred Nature because we were just getting into, you know, we need to really get our act together and give back and focus people's attention. Anyway, he sat us down and he said, why aren't you guys still doing Big Cat? What's the matter with you? You know, because now he's in the Mara and then the Serengeti. He said, we've got to do something. And we said, well, you know, we were thinking of maybe taking it to be easy, doing other things, whatever it was. Anyway, we he was the missing link because, of course, it's one thing to think, you know, we'd be great to do another Big Cat Diary. We could be the presenters. We could get camera people. But who's going to be the production company and where's the money coming from? Abe mortgaged his house. Wow. He said, I believe in this. Yep. Firstly, we were going to do it with Nat Geo, but they didn't cough up enough money. And so then Animal Planet, who wanted to at that point, this is 2018, 17, 18, Animal Planet, I think realized that they were losing out on the sort of blue chip wildlife market. You know, there's a lot of pet shows. There's a lot of in your face, Steve Irwin, who was a great guy. But, you know, there's a lot of that hype stuff. And I think they saw when they saw 
Big Cat Tales, and we'd started to actually create the programs, they said, you know, this will be this, you know, in a sense is us doing proper wildlife because it's authentic. It's in the field. And of course, Abraham, with his team, as you mentioned, the credentials, the production values since 2012, last Big Cat Diary, go forward seven years, you know, drones, steady cams, you know, Ronins, all that technical stuff. And, and he made a wonderful show. Yeah, I, I cannot. And I have not finished it yet. So don't like no spoilers. But there are some heart wrenching moments where, I mean, for instance, you return back to the Mara and you have found that the Marsh Pride has lost nearly all of their cubs and you're yeah. and you're identifying the cubs with their whisker spots and it's just is it hard because you get attached to these characters and this is real life and a lot of times nature is brutal and this is just how it is is it very hard to document sometimes yes in a word it, it is yes it is because i think if especially with the lions because with the lions, you can be with the lions for, I mean, literally every day, week in, week out. Months. Months in. Years. And you couldn't not, you, you get, because you're witnessing, they're right with you, you're witnessing individuals and you're witnessing these little characters developing. And then they become very individual. And it's very hard to to not be emotionally connected, I always end up with favorites. Yeah, you know, Cloudy Eye and her little I, daughter. I absolutely adore, you know, and, and, you know, I wake up in the morning and can't wait to find them, I can't wait to be with them. And so when you see something happen... Like Buffalo. Yeah, it, it's, it is heart-wrenching, you know, to just be a witness to it, because there is nothing. But do you remember, you, you remember that, okay, so there was one time, there was an amazing leopard called Halftail. Yes, I was, was going to ask, oh, I was going to ask you. Yep, uh, yes, yes. Okay, so now, now, guess what? So between shooting Big Cat Diary, Paramount Television created a series called Wild Things, and they asked us to be hosts and do, you know, uh, segments on it. And Halftail had given birth to cubs in a beautiful place called Leopard Gorge. So we were incredibly excited. We came down with the film crew, go down. First morning, we find a leopard in Leopard Gorge, but it wasn't Halftail. It was a male leopard. Mm. And he sussed out where she had these new cubs. And he was a new male. He must have been an incoming territory holder. He must have chased away the other male. And now, of course, he wants to breed, produce his own cubs. And his half tail with little tiny cubs that if she, if he doesn't kill them, she's going to be a year out of business in terms of being able to be a mother for his cubs. And we witness this male going into one of these caves and coming out with a tiny little cub, blood on its neck, and he's killed it. And the cameraman turns to Angie and he says, okay, what, what do you think? And I mean, Angie was just tears running down her face because what, you, you know, what can you say in a situation like this? You, you invest not just your time for yourself in terms of telling the stories and because you love what you're doing, 
but you become so connected to those, the lives of those animals. And when Halftail then came back later, and she's searching around, and she had a big fight with this male, and she was salivating, and she was mm. calling. You could feel her distress, let alone our distress. And so, no, it's, it's incredibly poignant. I remember another time we saw a buffalo. Lioness in the Marsh Pride uh, had little cubs. Three buffalo came along, and they sensed, smelt the lions. They went on the rampage. They tossed one of the cubs straight up in the air. It was hooked tore it down through the side mm. and again Angie was just like oh actually at that point I was bashing Jonathan yes. on the head with a with a camera saying drive the car at the buffer yeah you know she wanted like, um, because you can't help at that point you would want you, know, you, you can't you, intervene but you, you just wanted to get between I wanted Jonathan emotionally to get the car between the, the, the lions and the but we were by ourselves there yeah. and I just wanted to drive the car and of course you can't you can't do it you feel so connected to the pride you you're just thinking of anything you can do to just stop time for a minute just to allow the lions to, to slip away. And how do we, you know, and I think the key, so the key here is, and, and a scientist friend of ours, Amy Dickman, who is a um, professor of, uh, she's a carnivore scientist, she's done a lot of work on lions, but um, she said, how do we trans, how can we utilize that incredible empathy and emotion that the audience feels towards these creatures but how do we translate that into something which is going to actually protect habitat, protect the landscape? Because this is what we ultimately realize. You know, you can love these cats to death, but if you don't actually provide a big enough area for them to live in, and we're gobbling up the last wild areas right now, you know, we have to find a way to take all the goodwill and all the emotion that programs like Big Cat Diary, Big Cat Tales, generate in people and say right now the message is this if you don't actually stop and start thinking about your responsibility to the natural world and to actually ensuring that these creatures have a future then all those tears and all that love that you feel for these big cats is a total waste of time mm -hmm. and that is the biggest challenge we do that and that is what we based our, our last book on which was sacred nature volume two volume so two, sacred nature two which is all about reconnecting people to our planet and, and its landscapes and, and that's based on landscapes across the planet and why it is so important that we really do shift our perception about individual species and going after trying to protect just this yeah. you know the wild dogs or this or that and trying to make sure that governments get involved in protecting areas where it, it, it's a matrix, isn't it? So all those animals in that one place, they, they can't do without each other. Yeah. And so if you, if you just give that space, then... then yeah, then you don't need all these, you, you know, reintroduce lions or reintroduce cheetahs and wild dogs, no. Actually, just give them space and they can do, they'll breed perfectly okay. What they need is somewhere to live. Yeah. It's just like us. You know, yeah. we, and, and, and this famous American professor of uh, biology, uh, E.O. Wilson, Professor E.O. Wilson, he just died, sadly. 
but he'd had an amazing career and he was you know he was the scientific David Attenborough and his one of his last books was called Half Earth and he and this was written 2016 so by now you know five six years ago and we we're already losing ground but he said look we've still got a chance if we set aside half of nature basically for nature for the natural world you know if we can and so he was saying for instance instead of spreading out across the planet the way we do well okay then we're going to have to like china we're going to have to go up it's going to have to be sky rises because we're running out of land and he said half earth well i think sadly we've gone beyond being able to save half the world for nature but we better save some of it because if we don't we ourselves will have nowhere to live yeah and i think that there's this like there's this yeah. there's this misconception of people who've never been to africa that africa is yeah. full of lions and you have the savannas and they watch your documentaries and think oh this just yeah. must be africa but having been there it's truly shocking how the habitats have just shrunk and how they just live in these parks and there's not a lot of room and i think i what is it i is the statistic like twenty thousand less than twenty thousand lions is it lower it's yeah. just it's so sad i know but you know uh corbin a, a good a good point on that which you raise which is that in a sense you know we have to feel responsible that shows like big cat uh, diary and big cat tales they give a rather sanitized version of wilderness. Hmm. And it's rather like publishers. They don't want to see a bunch of cars around lions. They want to just see yep. the lions. And they want to just see the forest. They don't want to see people walking in and out of them. They want, to put, they want to perpetuate this idea of pristine wilderness. Now, one thing which is really good is that this year, sometime during this year, the BBC and PBS are producing a 90-minute documentary, and it is called The Pride. Mm. And it is the story of the marsh lions, of the lions that we have followed these last 40 years. But what it does is it looks at the history of the pride, it looks at the poisoning that took place, which nailed eight of the lions, three of them died in 2015. It looks at all the issues as to why, as you say, there may be only 20,000 lions left in Africa. And this is brilliant because it gives us the opportunity to talk about the issues which are really important and which we could never do on Big Cat Diary because the bottom line was it's got to be entertaining. People will switch off. If you start talking conservation, and of course things have changed now. David Attenborough's talking conservation. Mm -hmm. We talk about climate change, climate crisis. It's more acceptable to say, you know what, we may lose a few viewers because it's not quite as entertaining, but this message is too important not to put out there. But when, you, when you, Jonathan showed me a, a graph. Oh, yeah. No, oh, if, <laughs> yeah, I know the one she's thinking about. So this, this, so you know, because it is so, as you said, it's so difficult for people. They come to Africa, you know, it's hard to think. You go to the Mara, you see lions on every game drive. You, you couldn't believe that there's only 300 lions in the Mara. Wow. Okay, there's 3,000. In the Mara Serengeti, the whole area, there's 3,000. So we're, we're doing okay. But if you were to take a piece of paper and that piece of paper was to represent all the mammals on earth by weight 95 percent of the page would be taken up 
by man and his livestock. Do you know by weight, there is twice the amount of weight of life in terms of camels, sheep, goats, cattle, horses, than there are people. Hmm. And on that piece of paper, so now 95% of that piece of paper in terms of mammals is taken up by us and our domestic animals. I mean, it's a scale. So only 5% of the piece of paper, 4%, 4%, representing all the mammals on earth are the elephants and the lions and all the rest of it. 4%. We have literally, we've overrun the planet. When you look at it, it just... You're you're so shocked yeah. that it has to be untrue. You can't you can't believe it. You, you no that terror that we have done what we've done to the planet as a species. Well, imagine double the number of by weight amount of weight is livestock. Our livestock. I mean, there's if I think in terms of poultry and domestic fowl is more weight than all of the wild birds hmm. in the world. I mean, these you know they just put us and our domestic stock. We are at the center, and nature should be at the center. So unless we actually find a way to protect the last great wild places, which are so small, they're little pinpricks on the planet. So you feel surely, surely we can do that. Mm. Because without the wild places, we seriously, it would hurt our souls. Yeah, what was that famous? You remember the, it's often quoted, Chief Seattle. Um, and in fact, the words, apparently the words were written by a playwright or somebody uh, because we came up against this and those. But basically, these very eloquent words by one of the uh, first American people, which basically said, if all the animals were to disappear, man would die of a great loneliness of spirit. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I can understand that. If I was to, one of our greatest joys to wake up in the morning is the dawn chorus, the glory of all these amazing bird life, just coming, you know, the the, the day coming to, coming to life. Now that capture, that, that man, you know, his thoughts of being part of nature himself saying, basically, we take nature for granted. We take those extraordinary, the bison, the, the eagles, and in Africa, the lions and the elephants, we take it for granted. But if they were to go, that silence would eat away at our, our our very being because we're connected. We don't even realize how much we would lose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you, you both visited the Mara back in the 70s. I'm sure you have. I mean, have you seen a huge change? Oh, oh you have no idea. Yeah, on well, many, on many different yes. levels. So yeah. climate change, it's become drier. The weather has become more unpredictable. We get two rainy seasons, but they're no longer as predictable as they used to be. So you'd have the short rains, the long rains that start and end within a particular part of the year. Now, you're not sure if you're going to get flooding, but more likely drought. That is the big thing. In the Mara, I mean, the the development of tourist facilities in and around the Mara has definitely had a negative impact. It is still the most glorious place to visit. We would never say to people, you you know, don't go and visit it. It's a shambles or whatever. But the fact is, and we're pushing and and we're working with government to push for greater management and greater control of people who come on safari. Fortunately, in the south, in the Serengeti, which is 
eight, ten times as big, you've got a more, and, and in the Mara, around the Mara Reserve itself, you've got these wildlife conservancies, which is land owned by the Maasai people, but where they've made a business relationship with tour operators, and they have camps which are smaller, they leave a smaller footprint, and the, the game viewing is extraordinary, the cheetahs and the lions and the leopards. But in terms of the differences, so one of the other major environmental differences is the reserve, the Mara and Serengeti, depend on the Mara River, mm. which rises to the north of the reserve, goes down through the Mara, splits it into left and right side, and then goes into Lake Victoria in Serengeti, or just outside of Serengeti. The river in the dry season is drying up because of rampant cutting down of trees, because of offtake for agriculture. Sometimes there's plans for dams and for hydroelectric power. But the fact is, this river is one of the reasons why the migration comes to the Mara in the dry season is because they can find water. So that river is the lifeblood of the reserve and it is under huge pressure. So you've got that, you've got a huge development in the tourist industry, you've got the role of fire and a very heavy elephant population. The trees are just coming down. It's becoming much more open. And in some ways it's becoming less favorable for lions because as the habitat opens up, there's less places for the lions to hide their cubs mm -hmm. and to find shade in the daytime. So there's a number of changes, that, that, but those are the big ones. Fire, elephants, change in terms of the landscape, global warming, and the river, and tourism. And people. And yeah, and people, obviously. The, so what's happened is, because there is still land available around the Mara, which is privately owned, the population growth in the Mara area, so in the Norok County, is about 8% per annum. So it's probably double the growth rate for the country as a whole. And that is because of immigration of people moving into the area because of tourism opportunities, work opportunities, and because of the opportunity to find land where in their own areas there is less land available. Yeah. So huge pressure. Yeah, and I would say, I, and I remember my first encounter in the Mara, my first big cat was a cheetah. But I remember... Mm -hmm. I, I hate to say it, but it was almost disappointing, my first encounter with the cheetah. I've since had better ones with wild cheetahs. But I remember it was just yeah. all these tourist vehicles, just dozens surrounding this bush and everyone trying to get the best shot. And it felt so unnatural to me. And that was something that I had never seen in documentaries. And I just was like, oh, my God, this is not something just didn't feel right. And I remember it just felt I mean, I don't know. Are tourists a double edged sword? In your opinion? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yes. no, they are. I and know. Photographers. Yeah, and, uh, photographers. and photographers. The pressure of photographers yeah. wanting to get the shot, wanting to get close to mothers and cubs. But and it's there's interesting. There's no discipline. There's no control on yeah. photographers. Everybody seems to want to be a photographer. Everybody, and we're photographers. Yeah. So I. And we I feel that responsibility. It. Yeah. But you know, the thing, it's interesting you mentioned the cheetah factor because we can give you an absolute spot on. Um, update on that. We're um, ambassadors for a project which is run by an NGO called the Kenya Wildlife Trust 
and they have something called the Mara Predator Conservation Program. And they employed two scientists, one a Dutch lady, Femke Brockhaus, and her partner, Nick Elliott. He was studying the Mara Lion Project, and she did the Mara Cheetah Project. And her report showed unequivocally that cheetah mothers in areas of high tourism were raising less cubs. You could take out all the factors of lions and hyenas, any other influences. No, there was unequivocal evidence that pressure from, because particularly with cheetahs being daytime cats, they hunt in the daytime. They move with their cubs in the daytime. Pressure from tourists following, wanting to see them hunting, wanting to get close to the cubs, was resulting, and the study showed this absolutely unequivocally, cheetahs in high tourism density areas in and around the Mara raise less cubs. So there you go. Yeah, it's interesting. So but here yeah. in the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, uh, very close yeah. to me, yeah. they have a famous grizzly bear who raises her cubs near the roads. And it actually has shown, I don't know if they've done any studies, but some people are saying that this bear favors the 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 roads and the tour and the tourists because they keep away the large male bears that would kill her cubs. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, I don't. That. Yeah, so I don't know. It's just fascinating. That's that's the benefits, but I think the the Not thing. In the Mara. No, in the no. Mara, the, the, <laughs> the big the big thing is is to try to create more permanent roads and keep people from going off road or if they do go off-road, to limit the number who can be off-road at any time and how long they can stay there. So, but as Angie says, the, the issue with photography is, you know, and this goes back to the fact that, you know, photography is inherently very selfish. Everybody mm. wants to get the shot, and everybody wants to get a closer, better shot, low angle, and unfortunately and the, the animals get sacrificed yeah. because... They're not connected to the animals. No, they anyway. don't feel that... Just... I'm just out on safari. This is my one. It's trip. a quick fix. I'm coming to. Yes. I'm going to come to yeah. Africa. I'm going to spend two or three days, and 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 get that. And I but I can understand it. I can understand it. But it's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. I mean, we've had cars oh, run yeah. over. Cheetah cars. Oh my God. Yeah, the they're so cars, tiny. You know, the cars want to get in front of the cheetah they keep mother. Racing oh to come around the front drops a cub to go yeah, back to another back, one yeah. and the photographer is so desperate to get that shot just running over to we, the we had a, yeah we had a friend who came, came to us so distressed one morning uh, a French photographer uh, Michel Denihou and he'd been following a cheetah family and he came and he was absolutely behind, beside himself and he had seen a car just desperately trying to get round and there was just mayhem around this mother moving with very small cubs oh my god and he he produced he produced out of the back of his car a little tiny cheetah foot where this cheetah had been this little baby had been run over i mean it was just horrifying i feel that you know and i know this probably would never happen but i think the only way that one can have some kind of control is more education for driver training and getting people to really understand to have that soul that heart connection when they're driving that heart connection of why they're driving where they're driving and what they're taking the clients to have a look at yeah and, and so if you have 
connection, then you know, it's, what, what's that wonderful saying? If you don't care about, how can you? Yeah, if you, you don't protect, care, how can you? Protect. How how will you protect? You, you know, know, what you don't know about, you won't protect. What you don't care about, you won't love. You know, how, it, I think it's true. How but but you, you know, Corbin, one one of the problems is, is, and there's no question about this, and I think you see this particularly in the Mara. We've crossed a line where we've allow it, allowed it to become entertainment. So now people come with the, 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 the idea is to entertain the clients, take them to a river crossing, take them to Buffalo a mum with cubs. Yeah, you know, you've got people there, they're, they're, and you know, I can understand Music. why, you know, they're drinking and they're having a glass of wine and it's Music's all wonderful. And <laughs> but it, and, and it can sound a bit pious on our part or a bit prim or prude that, you know, oh, you're, you're being too sort of lovey-dovey, you know, get real, this is, they're just animals. Well, they're actually, animals. no, they're not, they're not just animals. These creatures, when you realize a, a, a leopard like Halftail, when you see the nuances that made her the individual that she was, when you saw her ability as a mother, as, as a hunter, her, the way to keep safe amongst all the dangers and whatever it is, these are incredibly complex animals. We have to sort of, we've got to revere them. We should feel this incredible privilege to be able to come and drop ourselves in voyeurs, you know, into, we're in a car so we can be close to them. But we've got to take it, we, we have to try to get people to pull back. And in fact, I think it could be, you can create, I think if you're a good guide and you make it seem, you know, you don't know, you, you know how lucky you are to be seeing this now. Do you realize I've never seen this before? This is extraordinary. This, and I can tell you about, now the clients begin to feel, oh, oh goodness me, okay, fine. So, you know, and they quiet, quieten down a little bit, you know, instead of shouting and screaming, you could say to them, well, wait a minute, you know, this mother's, she's trying to settle down now. She's got her calms, she's relaxing. That noise you're making, and the scientists have monitored this, if you put little heart monitors and all the rest of it, when a car pulls up, even if it's not that noisy, the blood pressure, the heartbeat mm. increases. So as attuned and habituated as a lion who's grown up amongst cars can seem, we are having an impact. And we need to be, we need to take responsibility for that. And how do you, I just have a question. How do you film a documentary like Big Cat Tales? Because in the Mara, when, yeah. when, when you see a vehicle out in the distance, you assume like, oh my gosh, it must have a great sighting. And all the other vehicles yeah. just zoom over. What do you do? Yes. I mean, because I bet you just want to pull your hair out sometimes if you have this great sighting, the sound is great, and then you have a giant, um, you know, bus full of tourists come and steal the moment. How do you control that? You know, difficulty. Yeah, with difficulty. <laughs> but I tell you one thing, Corbin, which we were very, very fortunate. The, the impact for good of Big Cat Diary and Big Cat Tales in terms of showcasing the Mara. So the authorities loved the programs. They saw it as great publicity. In fact, when we did the first series of Big Cat Tales, we went to the ministry, Minister of Tourism, we went to Narok County. They all said, we love what you guys do. You don't have to pay any fees. Now, the drivers who are bringing the clients and stuff, they love the show. And their guests love the show. And often mm. the guests will say to you, the reason we're here 
is because of you guys. Oh. You know, I've been wanting to come and see. So the goodwill on the part of the vehicles is excited and excited. It allowed us the privilege of being able to say to a car if they pulled up and they were a bit excited and noisy and we we're trying to do some sound, which is the worst thing. We could just say to the driver, excuse me, look, you, you know, we just want to try and do this. And they'd say, oh, you know, of course, absolutely. You know, so it was incredible. It became a, a participatory thing. And people sort of knew to behave a little bit as well because they felt they felt privileged to be part as we did. Mm -hmm. to have the privilege of spending all these times and hours and whatever it, it was amazing so so it wasn't as bad as you might think although I have to tell you I have to tell you when that cheetah Kike mm. liked to jump up on the cars we don't let you know we tell people don't don't do that anymore because people it got out of hand and people wanted to drive away after a while and you know the cheetahs could get injured and we were always extremely respectful about it but of course, she would come up on the car and then on a high point, like she would if she jumped up on a termite mound, she would want to pee and poop <laughs> on the termite mound. So guess what? Beginning of Big Cat Week 2003, we get Kike jumps onto my car and she jumps up on my roof hatch. Now my roof hatch is not, doesn't come off completely. It would fold backwards to leave a hole over my head, but it would then, the lid would rest over where my passenger underneath was. So now Kike jumps up onto the roof, up onto my roof hatch, and her tail is dangling down right in front of my face. And of course the cameraman's thinking, oh, this is gold. And I turn and I say, you know, there's only one cheetah in the Mara that does this, and her name is, yeah? So I get the introduction as to who's this cat. And of course, the audience are thinking, this is just wonderful. And then, to my horror, I look up, and now she's squatting. And I realize, oh my God, she's going to poop. And she pooped right through the roof hatch. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, to me. Yeah, and of course, the cameraman, I could just see the cameraman's camera shaking with laughter. The audience, it was voted one of the most popular things on British television that year. Oh, they just God. loved it. Oh, jo Johnny getting, sure? crapped, getting, getting crapped on. It's like out of, out of all your work, you're known for this one clip. <laughs> I know. I know. I, like, like sometimes, Corbin, I would be in London, even occasionally now, and I'd be walking down the street and I'd see somebody coming towards me and they'd, you'd see a bit of a look of record. I would maybe stop you and say, aren't you the guy from Big Cat? And I'd say, yeah, no, I am. He said, now, wait a minute, what's your name? And I'd say, it was Jonathan. He said, oh, he said, I just loved it when that cheetah crapped on you. That was the best thing <laughs> yeah. that ever happened. It's like, was it's like, really? Like, none of my other work? Well, listen, you guys. No. <laughs> we are uh, past an hour. I wanted to see if you guys could join me for the after show for a couple more minutes. If you don't want to, no worries. But if you yeah. would, that'd be amazing. And can you let me... Yeah, can you let listeners know where they can find more information about you, your latest books, um, and how you yeah. know they can help? Now, do we send you that information yep, yep, or we yep, tell you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you can send it to me. I, I will put it in the show notes, but I'm assuming okay. that you're, you're on Instagram, correct? So what is your Instagram handle? Okay, so Instagram is the big, cat big, the big Cat People. Great. The Big Cat People. Uh, Twitter, Twitter is, the big, is the big Cat People. Um, our 
Facebook is what's Facebook? <laughs> oh, Jonathan and Angela Scott. It probably yep. is also the big cat people. Yeah, so Jonathan and Angela Scott. We're so Instagram. redoing the website. Well, David, our, our son, is redoing the website because we're having a yeah, we've got a, a complete shift on on our fine art, and we're doing a little bit more with our instead of just doing um, for just images, we're trying to do a little bit more on the fine art side. We're hoping to have an exhibition in yeah, we're coming to the states America oh, next nice. year. It was going. Yeah, yeah. We've and, been invited to do an exhibition in Santa Fe, and also which I'm the, very excited the, about. Uh, and a museum. There's a, a museum that has a birds in art exhibition every year um, in the Woodson. It's in. Is it Michigan? No, not Michigan. One of Illinois. Those, no, no, no. Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin. No, no, oh, no. okay. Oh, no, I, no. Maybe no. Um, no. It's, um, no, we'll tell you. Out. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, but now the other thing is we do have for the Sacred Nature Initiative, we have the sacred sacrednatureinitiative.com, isn't it, or .org? Yeah. And um, we'll we'll check that out for you as well. But so there's, but there's the sacred... a lot of movement in in what we're doing online, and David hasn't finished the website. Yeah, but we'll get him to to tell us what we should be telling you. Okay, that sounds and then good. Book, it's we got we got an autobiography which you can get on Amazon. It's called. The Big Cat Man, an autobiography, which is our story. So, you know, there's a lot of youngsters who out there who, like you, started off by saying, how do you become, how do you do, how do you get from A to B to do what you did? Well, read the book and it tells you. So, um, The Big Cat Man, an autobiography. And then our latest book is Sacred Nature, Volume 2. Angie's just going to show you the front cover. Okay. Sacred, Sacred Nature, Volume 2, and it's called Reconnecting People. Oh, you've got both books. Oh, wow. I'll get the other one, too. This oh. is the limited edition. Can you see that one? Yes. That is a fourth cover. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, that's that. So that, that's, yeah, so if it hits you on the head, that's the <laughs> It is actually very huge, but. Yeah, but that's hopefully, a. Hopefully, I think the Sacred Nature Initiative is our passion right now. And it, it's the, the sort of pillars of to inspire, to educate, yeah. and to conserve. So that was the first pillars. first volume. That's amazing. And I will put the links in the show notes. But audience, if you want to join us for the after show, I have so many more burning questions I cannot wait to ask Jonathan and Angela Scott. All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. Are you guys ready for the after show? Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.